very little weak comprehension of making it. And the guys that are working the hot plates down at Needix, down there in the down there in the subway station in the bottom, look like they have not only made it, these guys invented the term. And you walk along, you know, along Fifth Avenue, and you walk along you walk along Madison, go along Lex, and all those buildings are leaning down on you, and they're all filled with permanent party guys. They're all filled with cadre. Sitting there in the chock full of nuts, grabbing a quick, grabbing a quick cheese sandwich, quick lemon cream pie before they got to get back to, to the old permanent party. And there you are, you know, a casual, a casual personnel. All you got is a service serial number. That's all. No ID card. You're not assigned to anything. You go drifting along. And you know what happens is that if you if you if you if you get hooked on somewhere, if you become part of a cadre too soon, it does you no good. Because all you have is the fear then of being a casual company man. And you don't have the one great lesson you learn from being casual personnel. And that is that you don't die out there, you know. You don't. You really don't. In the beginning, you think you're going to. I've always said that, that, that after a guy graduates from college or after he gets out into the world, the thing that he needs more than anything else is a, is a solid year of not being able to get a job. Because then you really do learn about survival. And not only that, you learn, you learn that you can't truly be hurt. You know, not really. Not, you, the first six months after that, it's like going on a diet, you know. In the beginning, it's a real, it's a real pain. But after that, you kind of get to like the pain. And after a while, you realize the pain isn't even there anymore. And you're beginning to lose weight. And from then on in, of course, it's fine. If you can remember that. Speaking of casual companies, this is WOR in New York. You've just heard our sales manager addressing a sales meeting on Monday morning. Would you like to hear more of that? Would you like to hear him give him the business on the Carolina Rice account? Listen to this now. You have to know the language. You know, ad people speak their own language. Listen carefully. See if you can catch any of the nuances. Listen. Oh, poor old Bob Alden's getting it again. Oh, boy. Bob, it's all right. We're with you, man. If you listen carefully, you can hear Bob answering. Listen. Hear him? The little peep in the background? The kind of tear-stained squeak? So now we're with you, son. At this distance, we're, we can afford to be with you, son. Uh-oh, there's Bob Smith trying to explain how it happened again. I'm sorry, Bob. It's my fault. Tell him. Tell him. Uh-oh, uh-oh, oh That was Leader. And George, come on, we got to put that away because this is a very frightening recording and very special. Very special. That's inside stuff, as we say. Uh, speaking of inside stuff, uh, the Worth Perfume people would like to... Uh, the Worth Perfume... You know, we've been talking for a long time about Gervivien, which is uh, one of the prime Worth scents. They would like for me to now, at this moment, describe to you something which is... It's interesting, this perfume business, and particularly the European concept. 
of aesthetics involved. You know that uh, that Worth has one scent which was originated after about 10 years in the laboratory and finally put on the market in 1936, and it's considered the new one. Uh, it hasn't really proven itself yet until finally about two weeks ago they decided that it was true, that it made it. And it's a scent called Vertois. It's an excellent scent. As a matter of fact, uh, there is one thing that should be pointed out about Vertois. A Vertois is what they call, and of course uh, it's... Uh, I hate to use these words because they seem to have no meaning, but they really do if you're involved in the nomenclature of perfume, which I have only very superficially become through talking to these people and, and looking at this stuff. But I'll tell you this, Vertois is the kind of a scent that men like. Uh, now, I don't, mean, I don't mean it's the kind of scent that captures men. I don't mean that at all. But there are some scents that are exceedingly, excruciatingly feminine. You know what I mean? Uh, Vertois is not quite like that and is an exceedingly subtle scent. And one more thing should be pointed out. If you, if you go into a store and you, you try Vertois, you cannot open the bottle and sniff it. This is not the way... It, no, you have to wait at least five minutes after putting this on your skin before you know how it smells. Because, you see, there are some perfumes, and Girovienne is one of them, that the instant you put it on your skin, it, it has the aroma or the scent that it will always have. But this is not true of Vertois. Uh, after five minutes, Vertois assumes its scent. It assumes it by utilizing the chemistry of the body itself. You see, the oils on the skin uh, affect the chemistry of Vertois. And if you would like to uh, try a very unusual scent, at least, uh, you know, see what it's about, I can't, you can't describe anything as subjective as perfume. Uh, all we can say is that Vertois is, is one of the four great worth scents, and all of them have a complete line of, of uh, merchandise in each one. In other words, you can get a Vertois soap, you can get a Vertois bath oil and Vertois talcum powder and so on. And according to the according to the man at Worth, he says that Vertois is the favorite man soap in the line, that many men use Vertois, just the soap itself. It's a beautiful soap. And uh, I'll, I'll warn you, it's $2.50 a, a bar, <laughs> in case you're interested. I mean a little bar. The standard, the standard hand-washing uh, hand type bar. This isn't a giant four-pound bar with stirrups on it. Uh, this thing is a, is a regular little bar, you know. But uh, the, the one thing that, that must be said in its defense is, one, it's the finest soap in the world, and two, it lasts about 50 times longer than any ordinary bar of soap does because it is, it is a milled bar of soap as opposed to molded. Completely different technique. This is Vertois, which um, very liberally and very literally translated from the uh, French means um, whew, close shave. Wow. That's Vertois by Worth. And you'll find Worth on sale at places like B. Altman, R.H. Macy's, and, uh, places like uh, Lord & Taylor, all the best perfume counters. Worth, and the scent is Vertois. V-E-R-T-O-I. Wow. Close shave. Wowie. Okay? Hmm. 
we're now giving you an experience in sound dead silence which is the most profound experience in sound that any American can enjoy at this time since as you are well aware we live in a sea of it oh no no don't turn it off that's no good because that's the easy way out you see it's like when you're looking at a television show and this blank screen comes on and you find that they're doing it purposely if you can explain it somehow you're okay but they're doing it to me they are doing it to me they are cutting me off they are cutting me off from the wellspring like one time we had in our neighborhood when I was a kid we had a spring did you ever live where there was a spring a real spring water coming out of the ground squirt just sort of just sort of seeping out of the ground and there were all kinds of little frogs used to gather by this spring in the springtime little frogs and and, and kind of yellowish green grass would grow over it and the water was icy cold and then it was a beautiful little thing and I was a kid and I didn't know that it was beautiful I really didn't you know you, you don't know these things it's interesting you read these books by these people who are supposed to be writing about the way childhood really was and it, they, they never write that way they never are that way all they are doing is looking at childhood from the way they think an adult thinks that childhood was I remember reading a couple of chapters of this book, uh, What Did You Do, Go Out? What Did You Go Out, Go In? What Did You Do, Nothing? And, and kids are not like that, you know. There is not the mischievous kid. And uh, all the, 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 the clichés of the, of, the, uh, of the slingshot sticking out of the back pocket and all that routine. It isn't like that. But I do remember one thing. We had this spring in a vacant lot in the middle of a sort of a, of a half-baked suburb that was just beginning to be a suburb and the water would just kind of seep out and there was a little trickling off and it would kind of trickle off and go off into the weeds and that would be the end of it but where the spring came out of the ground there was a hole and it was sandy and there were these little frogs have you ever seen frogs that aren't any larger than the thumb the, than the nail of your thumb these tiny tiny frogs they're little bitty frogs in fact, I've seen the frogs in Indiana so many and so thick that they were hopping around the grass like, like grasshoppers or bugs, billions of little frogs everywhere. And I remember this spring was there, and the water was very cold. We never drank it because we suspected anything that came out of the ground around there. We suspected that there was something terrible, something, something, you know, that was just there. It, was, it, it didn't come out of the faucet or out of the bottle. But it was cold, and we'd go down and fool around with it once in a while. And the green grass grew over it, kind of overhanging. And one day they came, the, the eternal they. You know, the they that does all these things? One day they came with the bulldozers, and they made this completely flat, and they poured tar over it. They poured tar over it, and they put, they put little pieces of gravel all over the tar, and they made a parking lot and a supermarket out of it was a supermarket yes right over the spring and and it's, no it didn't come up no everyone says didn't it come up and go through no no it was not as romantic as that it didn't do anything it just disappeared never never was there again ever and and uh, the kids around there nobody nobody really missed it you know 
and nobody really said anything about it. And this is the first time anyone has ever said anything about it, as far as I know. And I don't miss it either. Don't don't make so much noise. Oh, shut up, will you? Get off my back, will you, Shepherd? Get off, get off, get off my back, will you, Shepherd? Fine, I'll blow it. Don't you realize that underneath it all, I'm really Rock Hudson? You keep impinging on me all the time. But I don't miss it at all, you see. But I could write this little piece if I wanted to for, for the Reader's Digest and talk about how all the kids missed it and, and several guys pined away in the neighborhood there. And, and little old ladies one day suddenly realized that the spring was gone and now the parking lot had arrived. But I wouldn't be telling the truth because nobody really cared. Not a bit of it. Not a bit of it. And someday in the far distant future when they have paved Central Park, when it's, when it's a giant underground parking lot and a giant upper ground hippodrome and all the great, all the great eternal motorcycle. Have you, ever, do you, have you ever been in a hippodrome? One of the frightening things that happened to me when I was a kid was once being in a hippodrome. I shall describe to you a hippodrome. A hippodrome is about the closest to... I'm talking about a motorcycle hippodrome. Hippodrome. Say that word three times over, and it sounds like a three-legged creature that's found only in New York Times crossword puzzles. Hippodrome. Yes. Hippodrome. 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 The old Hippodrome. I'll never forget it on South Wentworth. The old Hippodrome. Why, sure, we used to play 27 a day in the old Hippodrome. Anyway, the, the Hippodrome that they had at, at Riverview Park in Chicago. It was kind of made of wood, really. When I say kind of, the outside was made of the stuff that outsides are made of. But inside, there was a wooden track that was kind of turned up on its end. It was a vertical wooden track. And there were two girls wearing white helmets. They had these white cloth helmets and these white cloth riding breeches, you know, and leather helmets. And they'd sit up on a, on a platform with two motorcycles. Do you remember them, Ed? Two motorcycles, and they'd be going... And then a guy would come out wearing a red shirt and a white cloth helmet with goggles. And he's riding on this great big Harley Davidson. And he, he, he comes out on a springboard, see? And this is out on front, when, before you're in. And he comes riding out on, on, on the top of a springboard. And he goes... And the guy standing up there with a megaphone says, Step right up, ladies and gentlemen, in just a moment. This death-defying feat, this death-defying act, the three flying zucchinis. And so as a kid, of course, I was taken in by this. And I went in, and I saved my dough, and I went in and paid my money and went in. And I remember standing, looking down, and these people came back in to do their show. Do you remember how their show went? And they drove into this thing, and they went kind of like down a chute. Wow, wow, wow! And they're going round and round and round, and smoke is rising, and the exhaust is coming up in your eyes. And this tremendous roar is booming out up to the heavens. And it went on and on and on for about ten minutes, and they just went round and round and round, wow, 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 right below you there, riding vertically. They must have been doing at least twenty miles an hour, going so fast. And it went round and round and round. 
and it wasn't until I saw the traffic going into George Washington Bridge on a quiet Sunday afternoon out of the Poconos that I realized what I was always reminded of all of my life after that. There it was there, right, this microcosm, a tiny cosm, <clears throat> a microcosm. Speaking of microcosms, we have with us Gogomobile. <laughs> Excuse me for the alliteration there. We have Gogomobile, which is a small world. And I would like to say to that lady who sent me the indignant telegram saying, would you please stop upholding foreign cars here on this U.S. station, I would like to say this, that the best thing that has happened to the U.S. automobile market as far as the consumer is concerned and his safety and every other thing too is the fact that the first time has arrived in the past couple of years where the U.S. car market has a true and, and a really vital competitor. True competition. I'm not speaking of competition among the companies here in the United States, which we have plenty of, but uh, they all compete with one another more or less by imitating one another. Bigger, wider, fatter. It's like this... Uh, but that's that's of no consequence. Uh, one of the most interesting competitors to hit the U.S. automotive scene in a long time is a car called the Gogomobile. It's a little German car. And this automobile is a car which in about three or four years, a little less than four years, has become the number one seller in the minicar field in Germany. Now, the minicar field is the small car field. This uh, includes most of the foreign cars that you see on the road. And the reasons are very obvious. One, it's one of the most easily maintained automobiles in the history of automobiling. Very simple car to maintain, almost completely trouble-free. As trouble-free as a machine can be at this stage of man's technological development. I'd like to say this, too, that, that one of the things that we have done, unfortunately, with the car, we've complicated it so much by the use of gadgets and all kinds of subsidiary pieces of equipment that the automobile is truly one of the most difficult and one of the least practical of machines that man has brought upon this particular scene. And this is a kind of a reversion to basic principles. Uh, the man who designed it said, look, Henry Ford had the right idea. An automobile is a thing to take you from one place to the other safely, simply, and with a minimum of expense. And this is precisely what the Gogomobile does. It's a beautiful little piece of machinery designed by German designers and put together in the best of traditional craftsmanship. As you know, the Germans have been famous for many years for their way with machines, and this is a beautiful example of it. And uh, incidentally, it's being studied by a lot of engineers today. And it's a car that sells for less, the, the most expensive model is less than $1,500, and they go all the way down to less than $1,000. And their models include uh, sunroof types and convertibles and vans and every kind. Uh, it'll it'll move right along with any kind. Anyway, it's, it's it's something you should know about, really. If you're thinking of, of doing anything in the way of an automobile this spring or this summer, you should at least know about the Gogomobile. And if you'd like to get the information free, it's, it's no. And when I say free, I mean free of foreign entanglements. Uh, no one will be pounding on your door. Just send the car to GoGo, W-O-R, New York. GoGo, W-O-R, New York. And they'll send you a picture and so on. 
And if you live near town or in town and you'd like to call them during the week and ask them about the car, to, or, or you're just giving them your name to send you the dope, send you the data, their number is Plaza 77790. Plaza 77790. That's the Gogo, Gogo Mobile. It's actually spelled G O G G O. You know, it's not one G, it's G O G G O, but to simplify, we just say G O G O, Go Go. Gogomobile, with with no e on the end. Diphthong umlaut. Mm. Who wants to cast the first stone for us? Now come on, stop twisting it around to make it fit your own meanings, your own inner workings. And I've got a thing here that has. I was looking for. Oh yes. <laughs> All right. No, that isn't what I, I wouldn't want to do something. No, I wanted to do that. Nope, can't do that. Yep, yep, I can do that. Nope, can't do that. Yeah, did you hear? There, there is something really going on. I mean, we're sitting here on a Sunday night. Let's let's level here, you know. We're sitting here, and we should really be looking. Somehow, you have the feeling that you should be doing. You should be doing. You got to have your hands in something. We are the doing people, you know. We have this drive and this urge. We should be looking at a screen, or should we should be. We should be reading something or hacking away at something, or at the very least, we should be sleeping, which is doing in a way. And here we are. We're sitting here, just letting it, letting it dribble through our fingers, letting it, letting it dribble through our fingers. Oh, come on! No, I'm not. I'll tell all of you, all of you people out there who have been waiting. I'm not going to hurl an invective. No invectives tonight, so you can all go to bed. What you have failed to observe is that the whole program has been an invective. That's what you have failed to observe. No invectives tonight. Seventy-eight percent of my audience now is gone. <laughs> this is the way we can separate the, the sheep from the goats. I mean, you've got to be able to stand right there and do it. Speaking of standing right there and doing it, go get my, get my cheap piano music here. There's only one way to do it. Go ahead. One way to do it. You know, you know, Robert Service. Robert Service, in a very peculiar way, uh, said something that is almost unsayable and in an area that is rarely touched. Uh, I, I don't... Uh, you know, most people, when they think of service, they think of service invariably writing about the Yukon, writing about the, the world of the Huskies and the Malamutes. But service, service lived in a day when there was a kind of strange... Well, not, it's strange to us now. We who live in, in a kind of world, you know... <laughs> you know, I, I, I was driving along one of the turnpikes in Connecticut here a couple of weeks ago, in a gogomobile, incidentally. It really was. I was coming back from the University of Bridgeport, and I'm whipping along, and I stopped at one of these roadside places 
Will you stop in and, you know, you stop in and uh, you stop in and you get gas and you sort of stop in there and uh, they had this little room where, where they had machines and there were slot machines and these slot machines provided you with sandwiches and stuff like that and there was a machine that provided you with stuff to drink and I, and I never had seen a machine that was as candid as this machine because it said coffee with cream coffee without cream coffee with sugar and without cream a coffee without cream and without sugar coffee without sugar but with cream and then one said lukewarm weak which I thought was kind of nice and, and, and it, it made me feel that the machine at long last was beginning to understand about people it's not that the people have to understand about the machines. It's that the machine is going to have to learn about us. And the guy who was operating the gas pump out in front, Ed, kept running back in there, and I'm standing there drinking this. I, I, I chickened out, of course. I had, I had coffee with cream and with sugar. And they got these machines that give out. And it, it all tastes like it's made out of plastic. It is not coffee. It is not cream. It is not sugar. It's just some kind of liquid. And it comes out, and it's in this little cup that's one size larger than a thumb thimble. And uh, I'm drinking it, and I'm standing there, and this guy keeps running in, putting a dime in, and he keeps the pointer pointed to weak. Weak, lukewarm. And every time he downs, he's oh, rotten coffee. He runs back out. And you see, I could, I could understand then. I realized that this, this pointer at the end there, where it said weak, lukewarm, was for people who have suspected all along that everything is. And you can't go back on your word. You can't really, you know. And he kept saying, Ew, rotten, and he'd go rushing back out, the old pump would go again. The old pump would go, and the roar and the tumult. It's like when the long, long day is over, and the big boss gives me my pay. I hope that it won't be hellfire, as some of them parsons say. And I hope that it won't be heaven either, with some of the parsons I've met. All I want is just quiet, just to rest and forget. Look at my face, toil furrow. Look at my calloused hands. Master, I have done thy bidding, wrought in thy many lands, wrought for the little masters, big-bellied they be, and rich. I've done their desires for a daily hire, and I die like a dog in a ditch. I have used the strength thou hast given, thou knowest I did not shirk. Three score years of labor. Thine be the long day's work. And now, big master, I'm broken and bent and twisted and scarred, but I've held my job. And thou knowest, and thou wilt not judge me hard. Thou knowest my sins are many. And often I've played the fool, whiskey and cards and women. They made me the devil's tool. I was like a child with money. I flung it away with a curse, feasting a fawning parasite or glutting a harlot's purse, and then back to the woods repentant. 
back to the mill or the mine. I, the worker of workers, everything in my line, everything hard but head work. I had no more brains than a kid, a brute with brute strength to labor, doing as I was bid, living in camps with men folk, a lonely and loveless life, a brute with brute strength to labor, and they were so far above. Yep, not by my sins wilt thou judge me, but by the work of my hands. The long shift is over, master. I've earned it. Rest. Boy. You see, what you got to do is to get the kite up. That kite doesn't do any good sitting there. I saw this kid today with a with a silk kite, a box kite, a knockdown box kite in Central Park. Next to a fountain squirting lukewarm New York water, and you know that special water that they bring into the parks. It comes out of those big, great, big concrete fountains. You got to get the kite up, Sonny. That was that was old Robert W. You know he's a. You notice the bitterness in this guy. He's got a peculiar. Uh, it isn't really peculiar. It's it's. Uh, it's a thing that, that, that in a way, is within all of us. It's, uh, it's easily seen only when it's brought out in the light, but boy, it sure is there, with all its little hooks dug deeply there, deeply and strongly. It's like the first time after you're out of the Army and you wear a sports shirt. You feel somehow you've done something deeply wrong, and it's kind of funny. Speaking of funny things, this is WOR in New York. And uh, like a great, like a great toadstool in a field of mushrooms, we grow on FM too. Yet, spreading our tentacles everywhere, fanning the flames of desire, and uh, occasionally setting off the spark, the conflagration of the soul. What's the matter? Are you chi- all of you chickening out on me? Is everything... All right, now it's midnight. It's midnight. Let us unbuckle. I mean, let's really do it now. Told you about the time that... uh, It's a funny thing, you know. I I remember one time walking out of Little Silver, New Jersey. In fact, if I look here, I have a letter here from a guy who says, Go ahead, Shepard. You only told us half about Little Silver. I live in Little Silver. Tell him the rest of it can't tell you the rest of it, because what is little silver is little all of us. And who can tell, really? It's like it's like the people that collect these little things that come in tea bags. You know the salada, or is it salada tea bags? The little, the little slogans that come out at the bottom that says, if we don't stand for something, we will fall for anything. Or the one that says, the best way to double your money is to fold it once and put it back in your pocket. Or the kind that says, if you make a mistake, make a new one each time. These are typical teabag philosophies. Or, listen carefully. Remember, blotters soak it all in, but get it all backwards. This is teabag philosophy. A pat on the back develops character, if administered young enough, often enough, and low enough. This sort of thing. The weaker the argument, the stronger the words, and we will finally conclude 
our, our tour of the Schopenhauer of teabag worlds, success is never final and failure is never fatal. Yes, unless it happens to be the failure of a wing strut at 16,000 feet. But then again, the teabag companies refuse to accept that one. <laughs> I'd love to see this guy who's turning out the, the copy for the teabag philosophies. <laughs> I've just thought of something. But, uh, you know, reaching in this, this friendly little old lady with the gray hair, the kind that collects little homilies like that, who really believes that success is never final and failure is never fatal. And she reaches down into the box, the Salada tea box, and she, she fishes out a tea bag, and she puts it in the hot water, and then she reads the, she reads the slogan. And the man who writes them finally said the truth in one word. <laughs> that was the day that it happened, the day that it got through. Speaking of getting through, <laughs> yes, it's got to get through. All we've got to do is, that's right, that's right. That's right, it's beginning to happen again. Did you hear that? You hear that? Isn't that exciting? It's beginning to slow up now. It's going to happen now. Okay. It sure is. Once upon a time, when the world was young, when man had yet to learn the ironies of being man, there lived a pleasant-faced youth on the edge of a deep forest. He lived in a small cottage with a thatched roof. He lived by himself. His mother and father had moved to a land just over the horizon. And he was making his lonely way in the world because he wanted to be on his own. And he lived on the edge of a deep forest that contained beasts and birds and all manner of creatures. One afternoon, just as the sun was rising over the edge of the beech tree, he set out into the forest, carrying his axe, the axe that had been given to him by his father, who had been given it by his father before him, who had been given it by his father before him. He set out into the forest, to cut some wood of a particularly rare tree which grew near the heart of the deep, deep woods. As he walked along the trail, his heart filled with joy. As he heard the birds and the beasts and the rippling stream. He felt the suppleness of his young limbs and the excitement of being alive. 
At times he could hardly contain himself, and he sang aloud. And the skies sang back to him when the earth was young, before man learned the irony of being man. And he walked and walked and walked. And then a great fear struck into his heart as he realized he was lost. Lost. Somewhere he had taken a wrong, a wrong step. And so he turned and tried to retrace his trail. But it was no use. It was to have no avail. He was truly lost. There was only one thing to do, and that was to continue. Maybe he would reach the other side of the forest. And so he walked and ran and stumbled all day. And then just as night was beginning to fall, and the owls were beginning to come out, and the bats were beginning to flit through the trees, he came to a clearing in the woods. There before him was a small cottage with a thatched roof and an oaken door and a shuttered window. Somehow he hung back. Somehow he was frightened of this. But night was falling fast now, and so he shouldered his axe and moved forward, right to the doorway, and he knocked on it with his knuckles three times. And then he heard a stirring within, and the door swung open, and there stood Walter Pigeon. Come in, my boy. Sit down and have a drink. Been expecting you. My agent said you'd be along. He didn't know what to make of this. They sat at a wooden table. There was a crackling fire with a great bronze pot, with a bubbling, bubbling, boiling fluid, and he drank deeply of the rich cocoa that was offered him. Coco. And then Walt says, "Guess I'll turn in. You better be on your way, son." And so with that, the young man, taking his axe from the floor beside him, went out once again into the night. It was a dark night. The wind was howling in the willows, but somehow he felt better about it, and even seemed to know where the trail lay. And within the hour, was safely back at home. But he knew that there had been a turning point, and he never could go back again. But it, as I said. 
Oh, that's all right. Don't don't cheer. Don't cheer. It's a little premature. This was all when the world was very young. Long before people discovered how it is to be people. When things were very, very young. another story. And if any of you want to know about this girlfriend and the other story, just get in touch with us now because there'll be no second chance. There never really is, you know. All second chances are an illusion, a dream. See, it was painless after all. You've been there, haven't you? You've gotten close to it all. You've seen and understood. Right? Right? I wonder if kids still play old maid. I've been out of touch with the kid world for a long time. I wonder if kids still play old maid... I wonder if they still play a card game named Hearts. In fact, I don't even know whether kids play cards anymore. I don't know whether anybody plays Pinochle anymore. I've gotten out of touch with the cabbage and Pinochle world. We're so deep. It's, you know, as you go along, as you go along, as you go along, you seem to go away from. And then you begin to believe that the thing which you went away from no longer really exists the way it was. If it ever existed that way in the first place. It was like, it was like this theater they had when I was a kid. It was the Avalon Theater. The Avalon. Isn't that an exciting name? Avalon. Come, sit upon my knee. Come, sit upon my knee. If I had my banjo here, baby, if I had my banjo here, I would... If, if I had my banjo here... I would sing all the lute songs of all the times and all the wonders and all the great, great surging things which we push below the surfaces of the sea of the beingness of us. Yes. So come here, baby. Come here. Ah, that's what I said. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's my baby. Come on. Let's go. That's it. Let's have that high heart one now. Come on. Come on here, baby. Put her right here. Come on now, baby. Come on. We got these guys. Come on now, baby. 
Come on, let's go there. That's... Oh, I'm sorry. They lined at the left center for a triple. They, of course, it's the ephemeral, authentic they. You mean you don't want to know about the young man's girlfriend? Not one of you want to know about it? Oh, no, no, it's got to be somebody out there in the darkness. I, I'm, I'm extending my hand now towards the darkness, the great forest sauvage out there. Each one of us lives in a tiny clearing in a thatched, thatched cottage, you know, surrounded only by the jungle beasts, the prey of the night. Each one of us, yes. There was a great philosopher at one time compounded an entire philosophy on that. And he was rather close to the truth, you know. We've all been there. I knew this girl who was so feminine that when you were around you, when you were right there with her, you know, when you were just sitting there, she was so feminine she'd make your teeth hurt. Just, you know, funny. She was a human ruffle. Just a ruffle. But then... Of course, I didn't realize it. Come on, man, that's a blow. Come on, man, you mind if I set in with you? Come on, fellas. Sometimes it just takes your breath away, doesn't it? Just being alive. Just takes the old breath away from you and you want to run and run and run and run and then stop once in a while and tie your shoes and just get right on running again. It's it's a sad one, though, you know, because you want to run and run and run and when you start running like that, you feel, you feel suddenly as though you're a fat man running against the traffic on 6th Avenue with all the nickels and dimes and keys rattling in your pockets and fountain pens shooting out of you every way. And your tie is getting wider and more spotted. And your shirt is getting more like a shirt all the time and less like a shining garment. And you're running against the old traffic on 6th Avenue and the sun is beating down and the soot is falling all over the entire Manhattan area. Oh, this enfabled rock. You don't know how it feels to not be from here. All those of you who are. Those outlanders. Those inlanders, those inboards, those outboards. 
those will-bes and those almost wases. You know what we ought to do once? Just us? A couple of days ago, I'm going... I'm driving along a road over there where they got roads and bushes and twigs and things. 